I want you to, to I want to invite your attention to Psalm 67. If you don't have a Bible, that's just there in the bulletin. Already this morning, on a very happy morning, we've acknowledged that it's still a fallen world and uh, fallen people in it and uh, loss and sadness. You may have heard from Jeff's prayer that even two church members lost parents in the last, uh, the last few days, one within the last 24 hours. I talked to the, um, one of those church members just between the services, you know, tears. As I acknowledge that, though, I do want to say that, that we actually are surrounded all the time by God's blessing and God's generosity. I mean, you can just see that in the earth. Uh, even in an earth that's broken, an earth that's fallen, there's just so much beauty, there's so much wealth, there's so much generosity and artistry, really, from God that's all around us. But on this first service in the building, I hope that if you have any tie to our church, if you've had any familiarity with this process, I, I hope that at, at a level of feeling, your experience and your feelings that you feel surrounded by God's generosity, even at the level of carpet and uh, heat, unlike the 830 service. <laughs> uh, God has been very generous. And, you know, there, there's times, there's moments where you feel that acutely. Old Testament scholars, Old Testament commentators have said that it seems like the psalmist who writes this was having a moment like that. And, um, in fact, I, before I read the whole psalm, let me just show you one thing in it. In verse 6... The psalmist says that the earth has yielded its increase. And you think about when, you know, in the world where wealth really came from crops and cattle and, you know, not so much from knowledge work and zeros and ones, it really from at all. It was crops were really wealth and revenue and buffer and insurance from blight and famine or what happens if we're invaded. To have a great crop was incredible. And so it seems that this psalmist has experienced a great crop, and he's just kind of stepping back going, man, the earth showed up. <laughs> the earth has yielded its increase. And what, so what I want to ask is like, so then where does his heart go with that? Because it's, it's great to be in one of those moments, but where does, where does it take our hearts? And I would ask us this morning, you know, in a very felt way, we're surrounded by the generosity of God. Amen to that. Where is it taking our heart? And this psalm really is a beautiful template about what we might do when we find ourselves bumping into God's generosity, where, where to go with that. In fact, where he wants God's people's hearts to go. So let's look together at Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us 
Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we are like sheep. And you know that we do wander off. And we pray that now as we're continuing to worship you, that by your rod and staff, that loving rod, that loving staff, that however we come this morning, that you would be hurting us, guiding us closer and closer to you. And we pray that as we're worshiping right now, as we're listening to you, your word, that it would be like we're sheep eating out of your hand. And it would be like you guiding us to green pastures, to waters of rest, so that we lie down and rest. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. When, uh, when I was in high school, and I think back about just, you know, those years, I, we didn't have tons of tragedies hit us in our high school, but we had a few. Uh, I had a classmate when I was starting high school. He, he had transferred in from Germany, and I just think that we were brutal to him, and uh, it took his life. As, as first classmate I ever had took his life. More often, it would look, not to diminish it, but, but more often what it might look like would be that uh, you have some students that drink and drive and get in a terrible accident. Maybe somebody loses their life. It didn't happen a lot, but it happened some. And I bet it's happened in your schools or you've heard about it happening in friends' schools or maybe your children's school. And I remember back then that hearing something. I was hearing it for the first time as a high schooler, but I've, I've continued to hear it after high school and college and now as a parent who's had high schoolers, has a high schooler. I hear these kinds of things when tragedy, bad things happen. Um, parents, friends, teachers say this. I remember the principal in my school saying this. Something to the effect of, well, I bet this is going to make some of our students think. Now, it did make us think, you know? I mean, we, we thought about what happened. We thought, man, that, that is sad. I, I don't want that to happen to me. That was not good. We did think those things. But I think sometimes when grown-ups say things like that, this is really going to make some people think. What we actually are saying is, this is really going to change some people. In your experience, did it? It did not change my high school. It did not change us. Tragedy does not have the inherent power to, to change you. Now, tragedy can impact you. Tragedy can leave a mark, but it doesn't have the the inherent power to change you the way you want to change. And here's the interesting thing. In the Bible, you don't get a lot of that kind of vocabulary, like we need to experience personal change. That's kind of how we talk about it. But a Bible word that really does get at what brings about real change in real people is the word repentance. And for a long time, I thought repentance was doing the change. But I just feel I come back to this over and over and over that Old and New Testament say that the the essence of repentance is not the behavioral change that we make. The essence of repentance is turning to the Lord, turning to Him. Whether you're turning away from the yuck thing that you've done and you feel yuck about it or whether you turn to Him from what you're pretty proud of yourself about. To turn to Him and say, have mercy on me. And then out of that flows the changes. Now, here's the question. 
what motivates real repentance? And uh, there was a time as a young Christian that I thought, man, if I could ever preach, I would love to just really lay it on hard about hell. And I mean, like, tell folks the truth and how bad it is and just let the bad news be the bad news and that'll really change people. There is a time to talk about hell. And there is a time to talk about the wages of sin. But the Apostle Paul, who had no reservations about talking about those things, no hesitation. Do you know what he says in one of his letters? In one of his letters, Romans chapter 2, he says that it is God's kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance. Isn't that something? That it's God's kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance. It's not so much, do you see that car wreck they they were in? Do you see the mangled car? God's in control of all that, toe the line. But it's in those moments where you feel His generosity and you feel how good He is that the earth affords all this, not just artistry, but beauty and wealth and really pleasure. And that all that's from Him. When you bump into that, that is meant to lead us to repentance. This psalmist has bumped into his goodness. Again, whatever it looked like, whatever his role in the harvest was, he is saying, man, the earth has yielded its increase. And it's a psalm that talks a lot about blessing. So here's what I want to look at this morning. First off, the blesser, and then the blessed, the, the people receiving the blessing, and then the blessing itself, all right? So the blesser, The blessed, the recipients, and then the blessing. All right, no shock on the first, the blesser is God. I don't think that that was not a big spoiler. But go to to how the psalm starts, verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now, I bet that sounds familiar to a bunch of you because that is an obvious echo of an earlier scripture. It's an earlier scripture from the Torah, uh, from the book of Numbers, chapter 6. And it's where, it's where God is instructing Moses' brother as the very first high priest about, here's how you pronounce a blessing on my people. In fact, it, this is really great. God doesn't just say, here's how you pronounce the blessing. He says, here's how you put my name upon them. And so he teaches them these words, and I'm going to use this benediction at the end of our service. The Lord bless you and keep you, and make his face shine upon you, and be gracious to you. So this is an obvious echo of that. What I want you to think about is that that thing that the psalmist is asking for, that thing that God instructed Aaron how to say it, how to pronounce it, God has been doing that from the beginning. God has been the blessing God from the beginning. If you go to the first chapter of the Bible, I should say the first chapter of the Bible, because at Downtown Prez, this is always the Old Testament, and this is always the New Testament. Okay, so Genesis 1, if you read Genesis 1, and, and God's creating the heavens and the earth, it doesn't just record what he makes, he'll make, and then he'll bless. It says he makes the creatures, just the animals, no human beings yet, he makes the animals, the creatures, the bugs, and then it says he blesses them. No human beings, yet he blesses animals. 
And then he makes the first human beings, Adam and Eve, and it says he doesn't just make them, he blesses them. And then you start the next chapter and he sets the seventh day apart. He, he makes the Sabbath day and he doesn't just make it and set it apart. He blesses the Sabbath day. God loves to bless. You may really feel that and believe it this morning and you might not. The more pain you're in, the more open loops there are, the more that's unresolved, the more confusion you're in. And by the way, when I say pain, be that body, emotions, mental, relational, just whatever your pain point is. The more you're in it, it may be the harder to feel that. Um, if, if it's hard to feel that this morning, how do I show you that he really is the blessing God? And I, I don't have the power to make you feel that. Let me give you a couple things to think about. In the Old Testament... If you're taking notes, write down Isaiah 28, 21. You don't have to turn there right now. But if you're taking notes, write down Isaiah 28, 21, because this is an interesting passage where God's talking to his people and he says that he's going to bring a curse into their lives because of how they've broken, really, the marriage covenant with him, because of how they've just so flagrantly disobeyed him, he's going to bring a curse into their life. And in Isaiah 28, 21, he says, this is my strange deed. This is my alien work. God says, for me, not to bless you, but to bring curse, that's a strange thing for me to do as God. But more vividly, you get to the New Testament, something that I love to talk about is that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. It's an amazing claim. If you have seen me, you have seen what God is really like. Well, what was Jesus like? Here's, here's one observation. When uh, he'd be out in the public teaching and all these kids would gather to him and just pause and think about the fact that kids were drawn to him. He was a grown-up. They wanted to get near. Kids would gather around him, and some people would say, I, I, you know, let the teacher have room to teach. Take these children away. And Jesus would get indignant and say, allow the children to come to me, because such are the children of the kingdom. Such are members of the kingdom of heaven. Now, he'd say that, and then it says he would take the children, and again, could we pause and think about as a man, with no children of his own. He knew how to pick up kids. And he would take a child and it says he would take them and bless them. What is God like? He's like a rabbi that picks up a child and blesses them. And, and Luke records that after his death and resurrection, not just right before he ascends into heaven, but as he's ascending into heaven, he blesses the apostles. It is the inclination of God to bless. You may be struggling to feel that this morning, but when this psalmist says, bless us, bless us, bless us, it is the inclination of God to do so. Now, he's the blesser. Uh, who are the blessed? Let, let me read verse 1 again with a different emphasis. May God be gracious to us and bless us 
and make his face to shine upon us. Down in verse 7, looking ahead to the future, God shall bless us. Who's us? Now, I don't know if you noticed this in the Psalms, but he talks about the nations and the peoples. And that is not a typo. Case in point, uh, there's going to be, Lord willing, in the future, a bronze plaque on the outside of our building, uh, the steeple, the wall facing that way. And actually, we thought we had the plaque. And uh, when we opened it up, I was with a member of the Interiors Committee. And I was so proud of her, not only for her eagle eye, but for her Bible literacy. Because the Bible, this bronze plaque has the name of the church and the date we started, and then a quote from this psalm. And it's supposed to say, let the peoples praise you, let all the peoples praise you. That bronze plaque came out and she went, let the people, nope. (laughs) I'm so proud of her, both for proofing and for biblical knowledge. It's supposed to be peoples. And that's the biblical way of saying, when God came to Abraham, he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to make a people out of you. Set apart from all the other peoples, all the other nations. So who, who are the peoples and the nations? Every ethnicity, group, geography, people, group, tribe, language that does not know and love and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The people, whatever their ethnicity, largely Israelite at this point, but not exclusively. The people are those who know and love and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One of the things in particular that you you might say plan A when God sets apart Abram, later named Abraham, and sets apart his descendants to be the nation, the people. He says this to him. This is in Genesis chapter 12. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Meaning, it's not just that I'm going to set you apart and we're this elite club. And isn't it great to be in the elite club? I'm going to set you apart, all your descendants. I will bless you. And you will be a conduit of my blessing to all the nations and all the peoples. Here's how real that is. Abraham's great-grandson, one of them, was named Joseph. This is not Jesus' father, Joseph. This is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph. Joseph, through the providence of God becomes almost the single head of the superpower of his day, Egypt. Only Pharaoh was above him. And when that part of the earth fell into famine, and the nations didn't know what to do, they came to Egypt, and through God working in Joseph, through Joseph, he blesses the nations through his leadership and provision of food. I mean, like blessing at the level of grain. That was always the plan. Now, let me stop and define something that we haven't defined yet. What is blessing? What is it for God to bless? This is one of those questions that a child will ask a parent 
And the parent who's like been in church their whole life has no idea what blessing is. I know this because I was the parent. What, what, do you, what do we mean when we say that God blesses? And I'm not saying I'm giving the end-all, be-all definition of it, but here's, here's a swing. A blessing of God is a manifestation of His unearned generosity and of His loving presence manifested either physically or spiritually and or spiritually, whether we feel it or not. Let me say that again. God's blessing is the manifestation of His loving presence and His unearned generosity manifested in body and or soul, physically and or spiritually, whether we feel it at the moment or not. God blesses. The plan has always been for God to bless His people and that blessing become a blessing to the nations, the peoples. Now, let me tell you a story. Years ago, some of you may have heard this. Years ago, I was in a coffee house close to the downtown. And uh, there was art up on, all over the, the, the coffee house. And so I was talking with a woman who was on staff there, and I found out that she was the artist, and she had done almost all these, these paintings. And so we were talking about that, and I was asking her about different ones, and there was a small little upstairs part of this coffee house. She said, come here, I want to show you my favorite painting. And so she took, she took me up to this painting. She said, this is a self-portrait. And it was a painting of like a beautiful blonde woman that you're seeing from the back with this long, beautiful blonde hair going down her back. And it was just a picture of her from the waist up. And I don't know how to say this diplomatically. She said, this is a self-portrait. And she did not look like this at all. And I'm not going to attempt from the pulpit to describe what she looks like. I'm just saying that she, said, she told me, this is a self-portrait of this beautiful woman. Then she told me that the name of the painting, she had dedicated it to her husband. And the name of the painting was, How You Make Me Feel. And then I said, ma'am, I need your husband's contact info to lead marriage clinics at Downtown Prez for the next several years. Oh, man. I mean, she didn't know I'm a preacher. She didn't know this would become a sermon illustration. She said, may I show you this painting so it gives me an opportunity to talk about how my husband makes me feel? Do you know that plan A for Israel was to know that she was so loved by God that, that when he said from Mount Sinai, when that mountain was scaring everybody to death, that you are my treasured possession. You will be my treasured possession. Or as another scripture says, that you're the apple of my eye. That when he says that, he really means it. And the plan has been that his people would walk in such confidence and such experience of that love of their privilege that they would then become a blessing to all their neighbors, all their friends, all the nations, all the people groups, all the ethnicities. That's always been the plan. I do need to say this just for clarity's sake. In our time, the nation, the people of God, is not a geographic entity. In his time, it was. It was Israel. 
So that's the blessed. But what, what's the blessing? Um, I mean, what, what, what's the content of it? Now, now, I said a little while ago, it can be physical, it can be spiritual. You heard the physical part, verse 6. The earth has yielded its increase. That's just as real as grain or figs or olives. That's just that real and everything that comes from that. Provision for cattle. Physical blessing. But there's also spiritual blessing. Go back to verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. You might, and I'm not trying to be cute, but you might say that this is the blessing of grace and face. Lord, bless us with grace. Give us favor that we didn't earn, we can't earn. That's grace. Give us unearned favor and give us your face. When God told Aaron, here's how you bless my people. He was big on, may his face be on you. And I, I love to say this to you, that in Genesis chapter 2, when it sort of re, 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 recounts how the first human beings were made, it, it recounts that God, from, from the ground, he, he makes Adam's form and he breathes life into him. He becomes a living being, which means that the first thing the first human being ever saw was God's face. Whatever that means. The first thing the first human being ever saw was God's face, and we never got over it. And our souls are ravenous for that. And so besides, hey, thank you for the grain, thank you for the olives, the psalmist is saying, And besides, give us favor that we don't deserve. Give us your face. But he also asked for something else. And to me, this is the most mysterious part of the psalm. Is look what he asks for in verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Now, pause. Why would the nations be glad? Why would different ethnicities and people groups get so happy that they sing? Here's what he says. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for because you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Now, if you've got what your teacher would have called your thinking cap on, that should make you go, what? And you know what? There's multiple places in the Psalms that say this. There's multiple places that say, Lord, Let the nations be happy. It'll talk about let the mountains sing, let the rivers clap their hands because you judge the earth. I I hope if you're thinking that right now you're going, uh, how is that good news? And see, here's the mystery. On the one hand, don't you want all the injustices to be judged? Whether it's something that you've experienced personally whether someone assaulted you secretly, hurt you secretly, and only you and that other person know it, or whether it's human trafficking, which is so awful, and the earth is so replete with it. Our cities replete with it. Oppression, cruelty, injustices. Don't you want all that brought to account? The, the human heart wants all that brought to account. Lord, Give all your fairness to that. Let it fall under your burning, pure eyes and give it what's fair. And the human heart also is 
is desperately crying out, do not deal that way with me. Now, how does that work? How how could the nations find out that everything that you think needs to be judged will be judged, not by a human being, but by the great God who will bring the whole earth to account and there could be a way that you don't fall under that judgment, where if he's fair with you, you don't perish. How does the psalmist explain that? And I'll have to be honest with you as a preacher, I don't know. Here's what he might have said if he's a devout Israelite, and seems to be. Here's what he might have said if he's talking to somebody from another nation. I don't totally know how this works. We believe that our God is the one true God. He's not one of many gods. But the God that made everything is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we believe that even though we should be judged, He doesn't. When when He brought our people out of slavery in Egypt, the night that He brought us out, He sent a plague and he killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. And before he did that, he instructed us about what to do. He said, you you take a lamb and you you slaughter it. You you shed its blood and put the blood on your doorframe. And if you don't do that, when when I pass through that area and my judgment falls on the Egyptians and on their gods, that judgment will touch you. You will experience that judgment. But I'm setting you apart. If you put this blood on your doorframe, I, I don't, we don't know how it works. Worked, but it, he did that the night he rescued us. And we know that a bull can't do it. Slaughtering a bull can't do it. But he commands us to bring our offerings, our burnt offerings. And, and judgment doesn't fall on us and we have his mercy. We don't totally understand how, how it works. And he's going to judge the earth. He needs to judge the earth. Maybe an Israelite could say that much. Now, if you don't hear anything else I've said, please hear this. And I, don't, I'm not, I want to be careful because I don't want to pull like a magic trick with the psalm. This is not a magic trick. But reading this through New Testament eyes, can I point out one detail to you? Verse 2, when the psalmist says, I want you to just pour out blessing on us. Why? Verse 2, so that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Bless us so that people know what you're like and your power to save. They know your power to save. An Israelite might have thought your power to save from enemies, your power to save from famine, your power to save from divine judgment. The word the psalmist uses there, this rendered saving power, the Hebrew word, is Jesus' name. Yeshua. I mean, listen to this with New Testament eyes. God bless us that your way may be known on earth, your Yeshua among all nations. And the way the New Testament would go on to say, say it is this. That because of the saving work of Jesus Christ, because of Him being our substitute, 
Not only living the life we haven't lived and giving us credit for it, but undergoing the judgment that we do deserve. The Apostle Paul says, because of that, God can be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. Of the ungodly. Have you ever gotten a text so long that you're just scrolling through it going, how long is this text? All right, this, this is a copy and paste of a, of a long text I got week before last. And I'm not going to read all of it to you, but let me set this up. This is from a pastor friend. I do have friends that aren't pastors. I know I refer a lot to pastor friends. It's from a pastor friend. And he's going to use a theological term in this long text. He's going to use, the, this is hilarious. He's going to use the terms, the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. That's a theological term for The active obedience is Jesus obeying God's law perfectly and not deserving one molecule of justice or that he justly should be rewarded. The passive obedience is him placing himself in the hands of sinners and not only undergoing all their cruelty, but undergoing the justice and the wrath of God for his people. All right. A friend of mine texted me and said, for the first time in 40 years, I was overcome with a desire for a Big Mac. I drove to McDonald's to get a Big Mac. I'm in line to get a Big Mac. I'm beside this woman. She sees uh, the hat I'm wearing. I won't go into it. And it had a connection with a group that she knew in town. And they had a connection with the church. And they were talking about that. So let me, let me pick up what he texted. I asked her where she went to church. She dropped her head in shame and told me she was no longer wanted at her church. When I asked her why, she humbly told me she was a backslider. And did not deserve to be there. I told her I was a pastor and was a backslider every time I took a breath. I explained that never once have I loved God with all my heart, soul, and mind, but happily not only went, but preached Jesus to a church full of backsliders every Sunday. I began to explain to her in simple terms not only the passive obedience of Christ, but also his active obedience that must necessarily be imputed, given to those who simply look to Jesus. If God's ju- this is a text. If God's just wrath was poured out on Jesus for our constant backsliding, then for God to remain just, someone must be rewarded for his perfect obedience. She became emotional and told me she had never heard such good news. We hugged and she told me she wanted to go to a church where this was preached. I don't want to read in something that he didn't say, but you might say that her heart wanted to sing. Because she heard that God is just, and she heard about His way, and she heard about His saving power, and nothing was in conflict with anything else, and as a person who disobeys Him, it felt like good news. That is the gospel And so I want to end by saying this. I want to go back to that bronze plaque with the typo that hopefully is being fixed. And we'll put up the new one soon. But it says the name of our church and the date we started. And then it quotes this psalm. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Now, do you know when that's real? It's not just real because we put it on the plaque. But it's real when we stop and pause and remember that until somebody I know 
friend, coworker, family member, person across the street, until someone is in the people of God, then that person is the peoples, the nations. And man, God has blessed me. Your house, your food, your clothing, your friends, yes. But if I'm in Christ, whether I feel it or not this morning, I have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Man, He blesses so richly. Lord, bless us that He might be blessed. That she might be blessed. And yet, we do pray that God's going to raise up more people, more families out of our church to go to other nations. Amen. But it becomes real when you walk out of this building, maybe walk past that plaque, and you go to bat for the peoples on your knees. Your friend, your co-worker, your family member, your neighbor, and say, bless me that I might bless them. If we'll do that, then we're being a church. Let's pray that that will happen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you that because of your perfect life, because of your awful death and the wrath that fell on you, because of your resurrection and ascension, because your Holy Spirit enabled us to trust you and take you at your word, that we can know that our God loves us and blesses us and is inclined to bless us, and we can also say, will you judge the world? And Father, I pray that if anybody within the sound of my voice hasn't entrusted herself, himself, into you, Lord Jesus, give them that faith now. Lord, how we pray that not only downtown prayers, but every church that proclaims this gospel would be used by you in our city, and in the upstate, to the ends of the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.